Welcome. The parish is a church community in Alpharetta, Georgia, practicing the way of Jesus for the sake of others. Talks like these are just one part of how we gather to be deeply reshaped by Jesus. So we invite you to join us any Sunday morning for a full church gathering. You can find more information or contact us by visiting our website at parishanglican.org. This morning, we're going to continue into uh, our look at the big story that God is telling through Scripture and through our world. We have two Scripture readings today. Keely's going to read them both. One is from Genesis. One is from Jeremiah. One is the happy verse today. The other one, not so much. So uh, take it away, but it's in that, uh, the other order. The sad one's first. So take it away, Keely. Uh, from Genesis 6, 5 through 7, the Lord saw that humanity had become thoroughly evil on the earth and that every idea their minds thought up was always completely evil. The Lord regretted making human beings on the earth and he was heartbroken. So the Lord said, I will wipe off of the land the human race that I've created, from human beings to livestock to the crawling things to the birds in the skies, because I regret I ever made them. Jeremiah 31, 27 through 34. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will plant seeds in Israel and Judah, Just as I watched over them to dig up and pull down, to overthrow, destroy, and bring harm, so I will watch over them to build and plant, declares the Lord. In those days, people will no longer say, sour grapes eaten by parents leave a bitter taste in the mouths of their children. But because everyone will die for their own sins, whoever eats sour grapes will have a bitter taste in their own mouths. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. I will put my instructions within them and engrave them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. They will no longer need to teach each other to say, Know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wrongdoing and never again remember their sins. The story of God and God's people. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Keely. Yeah, that Jeremiah passage was from the lectionary this week and and hits a number of themes that we're talking about. So I thought it was really appropriate to get into that. So let me set the tone and set the frame of what we're going to be doing here today. And first of all, I have a bit more to share than usual, so buckle up. It's going to be fun. Uh, We're going to move quickly. We're going to walk through seven chapters of Scripture today, Uh, and they're some of my favorite seven chapters because it's just a really fascinating way of telling the story of humanity, our story, and also what God is doing in our story. And so as you may or may not recall, we've been walking this fall through the five acts of God's big story the whole picture, the whole landscape, all of the cosmos from Acts one or from Act one, which is creation, to Act five, which is recreation. And right now we are in Act two, which we're calling us or the fall. This is what happens when sin, the force of sin, enters into the world. And so that's uh, what we've been sitting with the last few weeks. What we'll sit with for the next few weeks as well. And I want to just catch us up, especially if you weren't here last week. Let me give us a 
a two-minute recap because it's going to be important to frame today's conversation. When creation gets its start, it does so under the influence of the operative force of capital L, love. All of the world is formed from the overflow of the great lover's heart making a beloved creation and a beloved community. And so love overflows. It is the first vast and spacious force in our world, and it is what sets the world off in the right direction. But our story doesn't go very long before we fall into the second great, vast, spacious, operative force of our world, the force of sin. We come to the fall, and sin is let loose in the world, and sin is love's counterforce. So whereas love is the first great force moving the world toward wholeness and love, sin is the counterforce, anti-love. It is moving the world in the direction of greater fracture, division, and brokenness. So I want you to imagine these, these dueling forces that are at work in the world. Sin then becomes this vast theological category for all that is wrong with our world. It is the affliction inside of us. It's how we make sense of our afflicted state. It is a force then that we fall under. Sin is not just about doing that or not doing that. It is a force that we are operating under because of the broken world we are born into, and it manifests itself then in relational sickness. We are sick to one another because of the force of sin. And this leads to ever-expanding expressions of sin, which shows up first in the story as self-protective fear and shame. It becomes scarcity, which becomes division, which becomes violence. It is the worm in the rind of the world that creates contempt and confusion and hostility and hatred. And so, from the fall on, sin and death become the great enemies of God's story. And I hope we might remember that all the way into Easter or Pentecost of this upcoming spring, because we're going to sit with that theme. We're going to keep coming back to this. Sin and death, the power of sin, the power of death, are what is at odds with God's story, and God's going to have to deal with those things. So the second act in our big story, then, has five sub-scenes. We have been sitting in the first scene of Act 2, for the last few weeks, which is the fall of Adam and Eve. We all know the story. They are in the garden. They take instead of tending the world. They try to usurp God, to be God, to override God. And this is what lets loose the power of sin in the world. Now, today what we're going to do is follow the other four scenes that are also a part of Act 2, these these biblical chapters of Genesis 4 through 11. And what we're going to find is that what began in the garden with a taking instead of attending is what unleashes capital S sin, and soon enough, sin is crouching at the door, to use biblical words. It's crouching at the door of all of our stories, all of humanity. And so we see it in Genesis 3 here. We know the end of the story of Adam and Eve. And out of this expression of inner brokenness, the hiding under fig leaves, the hiding from God's voice, the blaming of others, all these things are starting to show up inside of Adam and Eve, this inner brokenness. And because of sin, the Lord God sent Adam forth from the garden to till the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the Garden of Eden, and note that direction, the east of the Garden of Eden. He placed the cherubim and a sword flaming 
and turning to guard the way of the tree of life. And so Adam and Eve leave the garden. They are forced out of the garden of belovedness, and suddenly the world becomes much wider, and it becomes a weary place of wandering. They leave belovedness in the garden, enter wilderness in the world east of Eden, and they are driven out of that place. And so we flip the page. We come to the next part of our story. We meet the third human in the biblical story. His name is Cain. And uh, along the way, Cain has a little brother named Abel. And many of us know the story, uh, but let's look at it through these lenses here. A few minutes ago, Keeley read these words that are somewhat odd words in the scripture passage, that sour grapes eaten by parents leave a bitter taste in the mouth of their children. The idea here is that somehow the sin of the fathers and mothers is passed down from our family of origin and into our lives, and we all experience elements of that brokenness. And so what began as an inner reality of shame and self-protection for Adam and Eve in their own hearts, in their own story, is passed down to their son Cain and immediately becomes externalized. It's no longer just something happening inside of Adam and Eve, it's now something happening inside of the whole family. It becomes this relational brokenness, a broken family pattern. And scripture tells us that Cain and Abel one day go and they offer their sacrifices to God. And for, for some reason, we're not really told exactly why, but it's also not really the point, Cain's sacrifice is not accepted and Abel's is. And so Cain is angry. Cain is embarrassed. And the point of the story is what happens when we humans who are now afflicted by the power of sin become contemptuous, become ashamed, become bitter. And all of that, that, that hiding that was on the inside of Adam and Eve now comes out as violence in the story of Cain. And so he murders his brother in the fields east of Eden. Things are getting worse as humanity travels eastward, things are getting worse in the story. And so what was private inner brokenness has now become familial relational brokenness. And that's what sin does. Sin is not the breaking of rules so much as it is the breaking of relationships. It is the expression of violating love, not just breaking the fine points of law, but breaking the great force of love, and it turns someone into an object that I can reduce to less than human for my purposes. This is what happens with Cain and Abel. Cain takes Abel, he reduces him to an object that he can export all that he is feeling on the inside. All of that sin is exported onto Abel, and it's expressed, expressed through violence. And so, things are getting worse. Uh, I wonder if we could trace the traumas and the tragedies of our lives all the way up the ancestral line to sin. Like if we could go all the way upstream, all the way back, we find the great force of sin that is breaking, fracturing, dividing our world. Okay, and then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and he settled in the land of Nod and look at the direction east of Eden. He's continuing to move east. Now, only three verses later, we're introduced to Cain's great-great-grandson. His name is Lamech. We don't know much about Lamech, 
but we know that he's walking around in a wilderness wounding world, and so somehow Lamech has become wounded. We don't know if he's wounded physically or if he's wounded emotionally, but we know that he is hurting, and hurt people hurt people. And let's look at what Lamech has to say to his two wives. He pulls them aside and says, you wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, truly Lamech, 77-fold. And this becomes known as the song of the sword, and it's essentially a way of saying, you did this to me, so I will do this to you ten times over. If you make me hurt, I will make you hurt that much more. It's the first time we see what becomes known as the myth of redemptive violence, which is this idea that's hardwired into humans that if you hurt me, somehow what will redeem the pain inside of me is to hurt you back. We see this It's so native to our way of thinking, we almost don't even question it, but it doesn't make a whole lot of sense when you stand back from it, because when we wound others in light of our woundedness, all that's happened is we've passed down a greater, growing amount of pain into the world. And so what we see in Lamech is an upping of the ante of the human story. What was relational in Cain is now made generational and exponential in Lamech. It's getting worse. The force of sin, east of Eden, it's getting worse. And the problem is this. Lamech's not the only one wounded anymore. Every single one of us walks around like Lamech. Every single one of us wants the song of the sword at some level of our hearts because I'm feeling hurt and I don't know what to do with that And so in the midst of my woundedness, we all want Lamech's revenge, and our imagination for violence becomes an exponential spiral. We are still in Genesis chapter 4, but we see it's getting worse. All right, Lamech's son is named Noah. You've maybe heard of him. In Noah's day, this cycle of retaliation has ruptured the world so deeply that God himself doesn't know what to do about it anymore. It's like the whole thing has gone off track. And God regrets making human beings and is heartbroken. Let's look at it in Genesis 6, 11 through 14. The Lord regretted making human beings. In God's sight, the earth had become corrupt and was filled with violence. God saw that the earth was corrupt because all creatures behaved corruptly on earth. Notice that word corrupt, corrupt, corrupt. It is, as we remember, Genesis 1 and 2, God's creation is good and very good, but what sin does, what we do, what we are complicit in, is the corrupting of that which was good, and it creates all of these problems. And so God says to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence because of them, and now I am going to destroy them along with the earth. Make yourself an ark. Now, we don't have a whole lot of time to dig into the flood story in detail. There's all kinds of stuff to unpack in that story uh, that is actually a very complex story that for some reason we keep teaching to kids in children's church. Um, I don't really understand why. Uh, But for for now, it's enough to see this as like this ongoing escalation of the problem and to notice this, that the ark is the first sign that God has an imagination to get us out of the mess. In the storm of sin, there is a way of salvation that ends, if you recall the Noah story, with a dove holding an olive branch. (laughs) Let the reader understand, right? Because the story ends with a dove holding an olive branch. 
we have been brought out of the great storm into the ark of salvation so the world can be healed. We keep on turning the page as we come to Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel. And uh, many of us know the story. We're going to actually come back to the Tower of Babel in a couple of weeks and look at it more at an inner reality level. But uh, for now, I want us to read 1 through 4 here of chapter 11. And the whole earth has one language and the same words. Now remember, this is post-flood, right? So God has done this hard reset. He has rebooted the computer, so to speak. This is supposed to fix the problem. Look at what direction the people are moving. As they migrated from the east, they, they choose to continue walking in the way of sin. And they say to one another, come let us build bricks and burn them thoroughly. And let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, otherwise we will be scattered. I mean, you could not get a better definition of the temptations of sin. I need to build for my own life something that will make a name for myself. And it's going to have to reach above God himself. Because if I can't accomplish that in my own power, I might be scattered. I might be devalued. And so this is the impulse that's happening here. Um, for now, I want to point out that Babel is a word play on Babylon. And so Babylon, if you recall the Old Testament story, is the place of exile for God's people. It is the place we go when salvation from the storm in the ark isn't enough to change us, and we insist on continuing to get our own way. Babylon, Babel, becomes emblematic then of all that is antithetical to God's heart for what home should be. God created this home for us, but we insist on getting our own way, and we end up in exile. And notice that force of sin at work in the story. Now, I want to, uh, as we talk about the power of sin, notice one word in the Genesis 11 story. If you put that back up, look at this word bricks. Bricks. It might be the most interesting word in the Tower of Babel story, because the only other place bricks makes a huge appearance in Scripture is when the people of Israel under the thumb of Egypt, are forced to make bricks in order to accomplish Egypt's building projects. Egypt is building pyramids. They're building all the stuff. They need people to do the heavy, hard labor for them. And so it is possible, and many scholars agree, that bricks are simply in this time of civilization how buildings get built on the backs of slavery. And so not only is this a story about finding a structure of personal identity, it is that, but it is also a story that the sin that started out individual in Adam has now become structural and systemic. It is possible that this is a story of slaves having to accomplish what those in power want done for the sake of making a name for themselves. And so sin that was individual has become relational, has overflowed to become generational, has become exponential, and now is institutional. It has gotten in the water of the world such that now what was just me feeling broken has become structural and systemic brokenness. This is what sin does in our world. Yeah. It's getting worse. It's getting worse. We're operating under that force of sin, 
and it's getting worse. Sin has us on the road to Babel. The power of sin and death is such that we're drinking this water and we only know how to communicate in the words of violence and vengeance, and we see things like systemic racism. We see the oppression of the vulnerable. We see nuclear arms races that go up to the heavens so that we might not be scattered, because if my weapon is stronger than your weapon, you won't be able to scatter me. Do you see the Tower of Babel impulse in the way that we're living? And so, I want to take a step back and turn towards some good news. Uh, first noticing that the fall that begins in Genesis 3 doesn't stop in Genesis 3. We keep on falling. We're falling all the way down into Genesis 11. Now, there's some really good news that comes in Genesis 12. But for now, I want to just say that the echoes of Genesis 1 and 2 ring in the ears of our Genesis 3 through 11 world we hear this voice, these faint notes, all of us hear it. I mean, Christian or not, in a world of violence, everybody senses in their bones that justice needs to get the final word. Christian or not, we live behind the fig leaves of our day, and yet we also desperately hope that I might be fully seen and somehow still fully loved. Inundated by the world's chaos, we long for a better word of peace to win our story. And even though the wrong seems off so strong, Against all odds, something in us hopes that beauty might save the day, might save the world. And so we are hearing a siren song. The longing for the restoration of shalom is baked into human existence. We hear it calling us away from this eastward force of sin and toward home. We find ourselves saying the words of those great theologians, Coldplay. Um, <laughs> no, I don't want a battle from beginning to end. I don't want a cycle of recycled revenge. I don't want to follow death and all of his friends, yeah. right? Something inside me says there must be a better way, and if I could hear that rhythm of the siren song of Eden, if I could hear that music of the spheres, I could be called home. I could turn and return home, and I might start being healed. And so in a world that is hurtling toward the east, there are some of us who say, I'm going to walk westward. I'm going to turn the direction on this thing. I'm going to be captivated by the song of creation and recreation. And this is what repentance literally means, to be going this way, to turn and go another way. It's a reversal of direction. It's a switching of sides. It's a being traded from the team of capital S sin to the team of capital L love and saying that if sin and death are the great enemies of God's story, they must be triumphed by their opposites, which are love and resurrection. Yeah. The opposite of sin is love. The opposite of death is resurrection. And God has a way to end the story. So, Let's get practical in our final few minutes. When you are wounded like Lamech, and our whole world is wounded like Lamech, right? There's only two ways for the story to end. Um, we can go for revenge. That's the one that we're all drawn to do. It's just our innate reaction. And you might even get that job done. You might even get even. But in the end, all that you have done is recycle the pain You've replanted the pain into the seeds of the world. And we become in danger of forming our entire identity around what was done to me such that it forever shapes the future 
It keeps on guiding the future. Revenge never repairs wounds. We try so hard to solve the problems of our world, but the problems of our world are not so much problems so much as they are wounds that need to be tended and healed. We have to draw near to people. And so if we try revenge, all we're doing is moving more and more people into the loss column of the world. You made me pay, so now I have to punish you. And now that person feeling punished makes someone else pay, and on and on and on it goes. There is another option we can forgive. We can forgive. And so this is the genius of Scripture. Peter, thousands of years after Adam and Cain and Lamech, Peter walks up to Jesus, says, Lord, how often should I forgive someone who sins against me? Seven times, which is a high bar, by the way. Peter's feeling pretty good about himself. Jesus says, no, not seven times, 77 times. This is the first place in Scripture that that mathematical formula reappears since Lamech said it way back in Genesis 4. Is this coincidental? Or is Jesus reversing the story you see what's happening here? Lamech says if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, Lamech's is 77-fold. Jesus says, no, not seven times, 77 times. He is not just telling you forgive because that's the nice Christian polite thing to do. He's saying forgive because forgiveness is what turns the whole story around. It's what takes the eastward wind and moves it back toward the western healing of the world, yeah. right? And so... This is the reversal of the story of a world that got its scripts from Cain and Lamech. And the cross becomes this new beginning, this way Jesus is pointing us forward. He says forgive because it marks the arrival of a whole new family tasked to spread a kingdom antidote of love and healing in a world of escalating sin and death. He's given us, the church, a better script than payback. A wiser word, a more healing narrative than payback. I love that. I love, <laughs> I love it. Yes. And so, forgiveness is the better word spoken by the blood of Jesus than the blood of Abel, right? In Hebrews, the blood of Abel is there, but Jesus speaks a better word. And it, the word it speaks is not retaliation, but resurrection and reconciliation. I want to point out that the work of Jesus on the cross is for the forgiveness of sins, but it is also for the reconciliation of humanity. Yeah. And it's really important we hold those together. And Jesus not only says forgive to Peter, then he gets on the cross and he demonstrates love and resurrection. Yeah. And Parker Palmer puts it this way, in the myth of redemptive violence world, he says, the cross says the pain stops here. The way of the cross is a way of absorbing pain, not passing it on, a way that transforms pain into, uh, from destructive impulse into creative power. Jesus on the cross takes all the violence and refuses to put it on anyone else so that the world might get a fresh start. And in a world of eye for an eye, the cross then is the unexpected plot twist. It is the alternate ending to the big story. It is the new beginning of the world where all of creation takes this dramatic U-turn and we start moving back toward healing. And how does it happen? It happens through ugliness transformed. The cross is the ugliest thing that could happen in our world and God uses it for the raw materials of healing. 
He takes the pain and makes it beautiful. And look at how Paul describes the work of Jesus on the cross. We'll, we'll start to wrap up with this. He is our peace. In his flesh, he has made both groups into one and has broken down the dividing wall. That is the hostility between us. He has broken down the hostility between us so that he might create in himself one new humanity in place of the two, thus making peace, and might reconcile both groups to God in one body through the cross, thus putting to death the hostility through it. So he came and proclaimed peace to you who are far off and peace to those who were near. It's getting better. It's getting better. Jesus is turning the world around, and Jesus now resurrected in a garden breathes the peace onto his disciples. It is the Holy Spirit, the westward wind. And he says, receive this spirit and then go into all the world. Propelled Pentecostally by the Holy Spirit, we become ambassadors of peace in a world of sin and death. And the power of that spirit is strong enough to knock down the mighty towers that are built by sin. It is strong enough to bring the olive branch back to a flooded world. It is strong enough to speak forgiveness exponentially. It is strong enough to be our brother and sister's keeper. It is strong enough to tend to the world instead of taking from the world. Next week, we gather in house churches, and what we're going to do is specifically sit with the question, how do we as a group of people begin discerning how we can serve our community? How do we care? How do we uh, speak peace? How do we feed hungry people? How do we help hurting people? And um, the reason we do that is because it's a small way that somebody 50, 100 years from now might go, Alpharetta, Roswell, Johns Creek, Milton, Forsyth. It's getting better. I wonder why. Let's pray. Jesus, would you help us to be people who don't just hear words that um, are exciting to hear. I, I get so amped by this story of Scripture and the way you layer these texts and the way you're speaking at deep levels to us. But at the end of the day, we also go home and we have real people in front of us and real needs in the world. Help us not to just talk about it on Sunday at church, but to find meaningful ways to do it, to be people of peace in this world. Amen. Megan's going to come up and lead us in a confession practice, and um, we'll, we'll sit a little bit more with confessing our agreement with sin and also our participation in healing. Yeah, so this morning it'll be a little bit different. Um, I will ask if y'all will to close your eyes and um, open up your hands. We're going to engage a, a practice of confession um, with not just our minds. It's not just a cerebral thing. We bring our hearts our minds and our bodies. Lord, with our hands open, we confess we, when, we, when we have taken that which we should have tended. Lord, with our hands open, we confess how this collective taking has turned into violence. Violence towards ourselves. Violence towards our neighbor. 
Lord, with our hands open, we acknowledge the pain that our hands have both carried and caused. And now, Lord, with our hands open, we ask for healing. Lord, will you take these hands and make them tender? Lord, will you take our hands and make them healers? As you prepare to pass the peace to one another this morning, embracing that spirit of awkwardness that Jordan talked about, I encourage you to just linger for a moment. Hold your neighbor's hand. Say, may the peace of Christ be with you. Call to mind the power of touch, of tenderness, and the healing that can come through our hands. Call to mind the pain and the beauty that your neighbor's hands have carried. May Christ move in and through our hands as we pass the peace to one another this morning. Amen. May the peace of Christ be with you.